Hi there, I am Mary Ann Franks. I am the President and the Legislative and Tech Policy Director of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. And I'm absolutely delighted today that I get to sit down and talk with the Vice President of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative about her book, The Fight for Privacy, Protecting Dignity, Identity, and Love in the Digital Age. So excited to have this conversation with you, Danielle. Um, Danielle Keats Citroen, Vice President of um, the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, but also a professor of law at the University of Virginia Law School, MacArthur Fellow, oh, any goodness. number of other accolades that we could go into. But we are here really to focus on this book because it came out recently and it's absolutely brilliant and it's, it's, it's life-changing in many ways. And I just wondered if we could talk a little bit about your motivation for writing yeah. this book and how it relates in some ways to the work that we do together at the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. So working as long as we have on intimate privacy violations, that is the way in which individuals, companies, and governments will expose our bodies, our health, our close relationships, our sexual orientation, sexual activities, and gender, um, the people, at the heart of those stories of violation have so long both felt invisible and have been so invisible in so many ways to companies, mm. to lawmakers, and even to, to individuals who they interact with who say it's no big deal, right? So to police officers or law enforcement who, who just don't see them and the fullness of what they're experiencing. And so mo what motivated me at the heart of why you know I sat down and you know wrote this book after writing all this scholarship over a period of time was to to make them visible and to make this both the suffering and their identities and who they are and the varied ways in which we are at risk, but also a story of hope too, because we at the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative um, have been working to change both what companies do what lawmakers are doing. And we've seen some change and we've seen important change across the globe. And so I wanted to make that fight, I wanted to make it visible so we could all see it, so we could understand the stakes and so that we could join, everyone can join it. Like a call to arms in any sense is, is what motivated me to, to sit down and sort of bring together all the reasons why privacy matters, intimate mm -hmm. privacy in particular why we should prioritize it as a foundational value mm -hmm. and how we can do it. We, it's not that we can't, we can. We just aren't doing a sufficient enough job, especially in the United States. It's so interesting what you say about the victims that who's, and the survivors whose stories that you tell so eloquently in this book that you talk about them being invisible because in so many ways yes. what they're experiencing is incredible visibility, yeah. right? Because yes. what's happened to so many of the people uh, who you describe yeah. is that their intimate images, the most private acts that they were engaged in, um, the most uh, sort of personal moments in their lives were taken from them and exposed to the world. And so there's this moment where they're yes. hyper visible, but exactly as you point out in the book, they become invisible because they're reduced to that. They're reduced yes. to these objects. They're reduced to a kind of entertainment. They're not human beings with, yes. with feelings and rich lives. And so what you give them in this book is the chance to be seen in, in all of their complexity and who they were yes. before and how they how this affected them and what they what they became after. So so it, it is such a, a service that you've done to to in some ways to sort of reinscribe for them, right, what their yeah. lives might mean. They're that's true beyond. meaningful selves, right? Exactly, the whole right. self to be seen as 
who your social esteem, that is your whole self, yeah. not as in a, not a fragment, right. not an object, not a body part. And you talk to so many people like, I'm just a right. vagina on the internet. And they say, I'm, 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 I may be changed from this experience, but I am a fully integrated person and I want to determine my identity on my own terms. Right. And that privacy is such an important part of the journey for self-development right. and the desire for human dignity, which is both self-esteem and of course social esteem to be right. seen as a full person, a whole person, fully integrated person rather than just an object. And then of course, privacy, intimate privacy is crucial for love. Exactly. Right? And, and friendships. And the way that you tell the stories, uh, so careful and so respectful of, of the individuals that you're talking to that when they tell you these stories, it's clearly very intimate. It's clearly very, mm -hmm. in many of these stories, humiliating and painful, but you treat their stories with care and respect. And so, so much of your book is about becoming a kind of fiduciary for people's yes. intimacy. It's about having a respectful yeah. attitude towards the, the kinds of vulnerabilities that people share with you. And one of the things I love so much about the book is that you enact it for us because it's what you're doing with the book is taking these really incredibly intimate, painful stories and not and not displaying them for some kind of right. consumption, but to actually try to, to portray the humanity and to take care and right. to, to really illustrate the principles that you're giving us. So thank, thank you for that, because I think it was such a gift um, for, I, I hope for the survivors that, that you're in contact with, but certainly Oh, and reader. every story is like, um, yeah. what do they say? I felt like I was a steward. I was right. the guardian exactly. of their experience. Right. And that's even true when we're talking about sort of corporate violations of intimate privacy right. or governmental, like with, you know, Rana Ayub, the journalist, like making sure that I'm, I'm going to tell your story. I'm going to make sure I honor it in all of its fullness. And so I, mm -hmm. I made sure every, you know, as I wrote the book to show the, the, the middle version, like this is what the story looks right. like. And, and here's the final and God, everyone's okay. Because I felt like um, protector, educator, yeah. that is what I understood from all the people who I did feature in the book, both pseudonymously and then in their own names, mm -hmm. was the notion that they felt like telling this, having me help tell the story gave them back their esteem, right. self, right? And right. the ability to kind of say, this is my story. Right. And I'm going to be able to move on in some respect, changed in many ways, but on their own terms. Right. So that was the, the hope of in telling those stories is that we could appreciate and see them mm -hmm. for who they are and not as victim as, as you know, body part, but as like in the fullness of their self. But it's important, as we know, because Dr. Frank, so as president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, you know, you work with state for state, lawmaker for lawmaker. And I know you bring those victim stories to all of your work because to get people to care, you need to tell those stories. So that experience of us and your experience has so informed how I think about the fight for intimate privacy mm -hmm. so that we are telling those stories and advocating and creating both, both a normative reason why we should care and then the prescription of how to do it, mm -hmm. that that we all think of ourselves as fiduciaries, as stewards of each other's intimate privacy, because democracy's on the line, because love's on the line, right. because our own identities are on the line. So in bringing that fight, I, I feel like I learned so much from you 
and making sure that the dignity of those stories were told in ways that honored those individuals. And then in that fight for lawmakers to pay attention and for law enforcement to pay attention, that we needed to share those stories Mm -hmm. as an important way for them to understand, get invested in, you know, what we were doing at the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. Right. And it, it, it really, in some ways, is it's an, it's an extension of what it was that we were doing or a reflection because you're doing yes. all this at the same time. This is obviously not the first time you've written about these kinds of issues. Your, your previous book, Hate Crimes in Cyberspace, um, which I, I know that there are social media companies that use it as a kind of um, a guide in some ways for them to think through carefully about the kinds of harms that platforms can facilitate. And of course, the piece of yours from back in, I think it's 2009, right? So you write a piece called Cyber Civil Rights. And our name, obviously, the name of the organization is the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. So your work from the very beginning was animating a lot of the the kind of plan, the kind of agenda that the the nonprofit had. But of course, it began um, as Dr. Holly Jacobs' story. So- When Holly contacted me and then I contacted you about what had happened to her in this, uh, you know, just horrific set of circumstances where her intimate photos are being used against her this way. Mm -hmm. And back in 2012, 2013, among the many emotions she's feeling in turn, you know, of course, we know what those kinds of uh, effects are, the, the humiliation, the psychological distress, the impact on her education, the impact on her employment. She was also thinking the fact that the law says that what happened to me isn't a crime is is Mm. not acceptable and no one should have to go through what I'm going through. So not only was she willing to share her story with me, with you, but her entire reason for wanting to do that was to create something, what what eventually became CCRI, was so that no one had to experience what she experienced, that she didn't just want to survive, she wanted to triumph and she wanted to make it easier for other survivors. And so that really, her story and the fact that we we were both privileged enough to hear the story and for each of us, along with the other board members to make our contribution to the project that she had and the vision that she had was really fueling what we were doing because it begins with that story. But I wanna return to something you, you hinted at and that you say, you talk about in the book so well, and that's uh, oftentimes when people hear about privacy and about some of the specific recommendations that you make, because it's easy, I think, for people to say, oh, sure, we should respect privacy. That's a good principle. But you say, no, no, no. I mean, there should be laws. I mean that there should be penalties for certain things. We need to change not just norms, but actual regulations about this. And people will sometimes say, we've heard this a lot, about how, well, those kinds of regulations, those kinds of laws are going to oppress free speech. They're going yes. to censor people. The the cure is gonna be worse than the disease. And, and you respond to that so well, I think, in the book. Could you just share a little bit about what you think the relationship is between privacy and freedom of expression and what it means to protect yes. privacy and, and also protect freedom of expression? So privacy is not in a zero sum game with the battle to the death of one victor, privacy and free speech. Mm -hmm. In fact, the privacy of our innermost thoughts, our bodies, our health, our relationships, Mm -hmm. our communications is essential for free expression. You know, that we know from empirical studies, now that we've been working on this Mm -hmm. for more than 12 years, that there is now empirical work that shows without a doubt that when you are denied your intimate privacy, 
you are way more reluctant to stay online. Mm -hmm. You shut down all of your communications. You withdraw from relationships. Mm -hmm. That is your speech is without question silenced by brute force of your being hyper visible in some sense, right? Your identity taken from you in ways that are, are dignity destroying, ident you know, identity denying and equality just, you know, disrupting those we, we, ne we don't recognize and see that securing intimate privacy is securing free and including sexual expression. That we're on the side of free speech. Right. I always feel like I want to explain to folks that when they say we're intact or yeah. would accuse the book of being an antagonist to free speech, I say, no, it's actually a prescription to protect yeah. free speech, but to protect free speech for all on equal terms right. so that you can tell your own story your body, your images, mm -hmm. like you should, we should all be able to tell our own stories. We shouldn't be coerced into expression that is never chosen, you know, by us in any right. way. So I resist the, you know, the, the narrative that we're in a, a fight to the death that, you know, privacy and free speech are on a collision course. Right. No, in fact, intimate privacy is essential as the precondition to free expression uh, and that we need to preserve it to be democratic citizens. Right. Right. And law has to play, you noted, right? Law is a big part of yeah. this book because we can't, self-regulation hasn't worked so far. Right. We have a market failure in many senses, mm -hmm. both human and actual, you know, corporate failure right. and a government fa failure. And we need law because it's our teacher, right? It plays this right. crucial expressive role. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit yeah. more about that because that is something yeah. that's been a theme of your work for, for a really long time. That it's what, what I think sometimes people focus on yeah. is, oh, you're talking about putting people in jail. Right. right. And, and it's certainly true that as yeah. part of what the the CCRI's um, legal reform project and some of the reforms that you mentioned in yeah. the book, yeah. they do involve the criminal law. But yeah. people want to focus on, well, people being put in jail. Yeah. And what I think is so um, evocative about a lot of your work is that you're talking about law as a teacher. And what that means is it's not about the moment at which someone chooses to violate the law and gets punished. What you're actually, I think, and, and you can yeah, of course. tell me if, if this is right, what I hear you saying is that law teaches us so that we don't do this to other people. Yes. There are two tragedies here, right? Yes. We don't want to celebrate incarceration. We don't want to celebrate no. having to bring the criminal justice system into play. The, the, but the view here is if we have the law have this expressive potential, it teaches us what's important and what's yeah. harmful. And that not only prevents people from maybe engaging in these types of, of acts, well, certainly we hope that it means yeah. that they will not engage in these acts, yeah. but it will also make them understand what, what the experience is like for a victim or survivor yeah. going through this. So yeah, could you say a little more about what, why is that, what have you seen in some of the stories yeah. that you tell? Because some of the stories you tell are the ones that I think are more familiar to people about yeah the really vengeful ex-boyfriend, the yeah. one who's really trying to destroy someone's life. And a lot of people will conclude that person should probably be punished. But there's all these stories that you also yeah. mentioned, which are not really about some sort of personal desire to hurt or harass the victim. It's, it's, it's much more impersonal. So yeah. could you talk a little bit about sure. that and what role the law you see playing there for situations like that? Yeah, no, well, we know both from the anecdotal stories that I tell, yeah. but also empirical work is that when we get a chance to, to interview or to survey people who have invaded other people's intimate privacy, 
that they're not doing it for revenge. Mm -hmm. They're often doing it to show off. They are doing it because it makes them look good, you know, for their peers. Mm -hmm. They're doing it because they think it's fun. Right. They're doing it because they think it'll get them some social capital in ways that are, you know, that it's like trading cards. Like, oh, I, I, I just passed out the coolest trading card, right? What do you think? Um, and they're not doing it because they want to hurt someone. So an intent to destroy their lives isn't what's behind it, mm -hmm. right? It is, it is, society hasn't yet quite caught up and law has not caught up to teach them mm. that this is really harmful, that it's wrong. And we know from studies that perpetrators say if they knew mm -hmm. that law would come in and say it's wrong, that they might face some sort of penalty or punishment, that they would never do it. Mm -hmm. That in fact, showing them that it's harmful and explaining how much people suffer, they then say, gosh, well, I wouldn't have done it. Like, had I known it was so you know, tragic for that person, had I known it wasn't a joke, had I known it wasn't like, gonna kind of give me cachet, but rather like risk penalties, criminal and civil, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have done it. So law has to, you know, whenever we have these kinds of social failures, like market failures, law comes in to help teach us right. and deter, deter problems and to shape behavior. So I want law to be our teacher. Yeah, and, and you're right to say that here we actually have some empirical evidence that that isn't available, I think, in a lot of other, because it is, it's, it's a valid point to say, do we really know if, if yeah. criminal laws deter? And as you're pointing out to the 2017 study that CSRI yeah. did, where we asked perpetrators, you know, what would have kept you from, from engaging in this behavior? And there was a little bit of, you know, well, if I knew how harmful it was, or if, but most of it, or if I knew I could get sued, right, was another right. option. So some of them worried a little bit about that. But as you're, yes. you're pointing out, the, the kind of really strong showing was, yeah. if I thought I could go to jail, I wouldn't have done it. Yes. And I think what we can certainly interpret from that is yes. people know that that means something serious, right? That yes. the law takes this seriously. I'm not going to do this thing that doesn't necessarily bring me a, a benefit, something right. that I might have done as, as a lark, right? Who knows? Yeah. If I knew that there were going to be serious penalties. And so we do have pretty good evidence here to totally. suggest that if the law took a certain strong stance on these issues, then yes. we probably just have a lot less perpetration. So that one of the things that you point out in the book is that you know there are there are civil suits that people can bring. There there are there are ways that we can get um, try to get some sort of remedy back for for victims. But in so many ways, what's happened to them, it's if not exactly irreparable, it's not the kind of thing you can make them whole again for. So could yeah. you say a little more about what of some of the experiences were for the the people that you talk about in the book? So that the, the, you know, you think of lawsuits, civil lawsuits mm -hmm. and civil penalties is like you're paying recompense and you're putting people back to where they were. Right. It, with intimate privacy violations, as victims have said, it is an incurable disease. That is, you're changed forever. Mm -hmm. There are ways in which you can't get that old self. So often you talk to folks and they say, that other person, mm -hmm. talking to the same person, that other person, that's a different person. I don't know that person anymore. So there's a way in which civil penalties just can't do it all. Mm -hmm. You can't just keep paying someone that incurable disease. What they want is to it have not happened. Right. Right. That they want to be that old self who never had to go through all this pain and suffering, whose privacy was intact, mm -hmm. whose integrity and right identity was theirs on their own terms. Right. And so what the criminal system does um, crucially is teach us mm -hmm. so that it doesn't happen. I don't want to throw anyone in jail. I want to fix the criminal justice problems, of course. But what, what civil penalties and, 
and common law claims can't really do mm-hmm. is capture the concept of don't ever do it. Yeah. Right. And don't ever do it. And we know from studies that perpetrators say I wouldn't have done it yeah. had I known there were potential criminal penalties and they wouldn't have done it. So yeah. in that effort to minimize the occurrences of violations of intimate privacy, criminal law plays an important role. Right. Because like I- in contrast to some of the other harms we think about that tort law can maybe manage, we can't really, uh, there really isn't any way to sort of compensate a person. And so what we're really right. focusing on is deterrence as in this just can't happen to begin with, right? Yeah. And that the way that we really get that or the closest that we come to a, a kind of social deterrence is through the, the gravity of the criminal law. Yeah. And the other thing that seems so important about that is Criminal law also stands in for saying this wasn't just something you did to one person. It's something you've done to a value. And exactly what your book um, does so masterfully, it says that should be a value that is a social value. It's not just that individual's privacy was violated. You violated a value that is integral to the social fabric. And so criminal law really does convey that. And the fact that it is overused and that it is improperly used shouldn't stop us from thinking that there are times where it's justified and, and you make a really compelling case for saying that this is one of those. And, and, and privacy isn't me, Yeah, it's we, it's us. Right. So it's both societal, it's relational, right. and we have to fight for it. Yeah. You know, in a way that's a social reckoning. And we've gotta use all the tools at our disposal, I'll take them all. <laughs> I'll right, take civil, right. I'll take criminal. And I also think as the civil rights framing is both civil and criminal. Yes but it helps us understand it's a right that each and every one of us enjoys, Mm -hmm. but that is particularly vulnerable to inequality and to discrimination and invidious attitudes and stereotypes, that we need to marshal all of it so that we all can enjoy it. And as a society, we can all enjoy it. Right. And if you could say a little bit more about that, because one of the animating themes of your work before now, but also particularly in this book, is about the concept of civil rights, right? It's yeah. not just a question of this is an individual harm, it's privacy as a, and specifically intimate privacy as a civil right. Could you spell out a little bit more what you mean by that and why does it need to be conceptualized as a civil right? Right, because you could call intimate privacy a moral right. right. You, you can call it a human right, which often mm-hmm. would just constrain governments. But what I think the civil right conversation, what it adds, is, is one that is, has a long and rich history in our mm-hmm. understanding of civil rights, the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Right. The sort of concept of civil rights is something that is so foundational to living a life of flourish, that you can flourish, mm-hmm. that of, one of integrity, that you have, um, that it sets the floor for engaging with other people and to falling in love, all of those opportunities that you need intimate privacy as a precondition to all those things. Mm-hmm. And when we say something is a civil right, it is so indispensable to our development, to our flourishing, mm-hmm. that we say that everyone who has some power over that right needs to skin in the game, that they need to act as the steward mm-hmm. of those opportunities. So when you say something's a civil right, yes, each and every one of us should enjoy it. Right. Yes, we should protect, especially the vul- people who are most vulnerable to having it be lost right. and denied. But it also means that all of us are the stewards. If we are, if we have some power over someone else's intimate privacy, whether it's a company, right, a dating app, whether it is your Alexa, whether it's another individual, right, or a government actor, that they are the stewards, that they are the guardians right. 
of those rights and have special responsibilities in the way that schools have special responsibilities right. to ensure that we can enjoy the environments without sexual hostility, for instance, right, or harassment, uh, in the way that employers have responsibilities. So that when you switch the framing, as opposed to a consumer protection approach mm -hmm. where it's just boys being boys, mm -hmm. like you can do whatever you want. If boys being boys, go for it, right? Yeah. Or companies call it a consumer protection problem, which means you mm -hmm. can do it unless we can show you know, all sorts of aggregate harm, right? Unless you don't lie to us, basically. Companies can do whatever they want in handling mm -hmm. our data, so long as they don't lie to us in their privacy mm -hmm. policies. But if you flip it and you say the default is you're you're actually responsible for something really important. Yeah. You're the guardian of something that's so sacred, mm -hmm. you can't exploit it for no good reason. Yeah. Like right, when you call someone something a civil right, it, it means that it can't be traded away. You know, it's a priority. It can't mm -hmm. be traded away without a really, really good reason. And that really good reason needs to be justified, right? Right. And proven. And so we've all got responsibilities to it, is the is the theme mm -hmm. of the work. And I, I love that as a theme because it really does, it tells everyone what their role is because it isn't just, I think as your book highlights, that any one of us could become the target of an invasion of intimate privacy. It's that all of us are going to be entrusted with someone's yeah. privacy at some point. Yeah. And your book does such a wonderful job of saying you know, there are corporations who, are, who have our private information. There are governments that have it. There's also just our neighbors, our lovers, our friends who That's have right. this. And when you're promoting this view of privacy as something sacred, that it's such an important, it's such an important lesson for us to think about on either sides of this, whether it's yeah. our intimate privacy or someone else's. Yeah. And I know that you and I both. It's us. It's us, and you and I both right. um, yeah. are, I think, captivated in some ways by the Lady Godiva yeah. story. Yes. I think part yes. of the reason why we find it so interesting. It's because in this story, we know that Lady Godiva isn't riding around naked because she wants to. This is not something that yeah. she's choosing as a, she's, she thinks yeah. that it's going to mean that, um, or she's hoping that it would mean that, that her husband, who's, who's this you know, horrific ruler, yeah. is going to be kinder to the citizens. So she's got this motivation that's trying to protect her beloved townspeople. Yeah. And because the beloved townspeople understand this, yeah. you know, even though the, the husband forces her to do it, right? Um, they yeah. all choose, they choose, not because they were, they had to, yes. they choose not to look. They all choose to look away yes. because they understand that this is an exposure that she has not really consented to. Yeah. And with the exception of the person who now has been known as now the peeping Tom, right? That's One right. person decides to look, everyone else out of respect and out of loyalty says, you know, we're not going to, to look at this thing that we yes. could look at. And that um, the person who does should be the, the outcast. You know, in the That's story, right. depending on which version um, we hear, yeah. he's either struck blind or he's struck dead. So there, there are very serious penalties to being the person who doesn't right. look away. So what I really do, uh, among the many things that, that I think is powerful about what your book has done, it's invited us to think about ourselves as those kinds of people who respect each other and respect yeah. The fact that if someone has either shared uh, consensually with us or or has been coerced into sharing something yes, with us, right. that our first impulse should not be to exploit it. That's it right. shouldn't be to take advantage of that vulnerability. It should be to, to safeguard it. So I, I think that that's really such a compelling um, aspect of what your, your, um, your book has done. And I guess I would just ask you in closing uh, yeah, about- of course. What would you like readers to come away with most? Mm. I mean, so what, you know, what's your dream for, for how people yeah. read this book? They put it down. What is it that you, you hope they're feeling or experiencing or doing? Yeah, that they, I would in an ideal world, 
you, you put this thing down and you say, okay, I'm gonna go to talk to everyone I care about mm -hmm. and everybody I meet. And I'm gonna explain, let me tell you why intimate privacy matters and how we are responsible for each other. Mm -hmm. And we are an us and that we see ourselves as being reciprocally responsible for one another. That we're in this together. That is, you know, we're, we're not at odds. That right. we can do this and we have to do it one by one, but we have to do it as a society too. So that's the hope, yeah. you know, the takeaway. Well, that's wonderful. So thank you for and, talking to me about it. And uh, again- And for the, your leadership. Oh, but uh, th this is uh, the fight for privacy, uh, protecting dignity, identity, and love in the digital age. Daniel Keat Citrin, professor of law at UVA, but also the vice president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. Thank you so much for talking to us about, about your book and your wonderful work. Thank you so much.